Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. So I'm Zooming with a stranger trying to find quiet refuge from my homeschool children, either of whom could barge in here at any moment. I am their teacher. I am a bad teacher. And yes, I am wearing sweatpants. This is podcasting while quarantining during a global pandemic. This is Hot Takes on a Plate here on the Believe Podcast Network. I'm Rob Patron, and each week here on Hot Takes on a Plate, you get to eavesdrop on the ultimate food fights as I debate my culinary world friends and other eating enthusiasts in their areas of expertise. And that total stranger I referred to earlier is someone whose work I've admired from afar these past few years. She's the restaurant editor for Food & Wine magazine. Previously, she wrote for Thrillist and Eater, among others. Kushbu Shah is joining me via social distancing technology. Kushbu, first off, thank you for joining me and this weird sort of predicament that we're all in doing this Zooming uh, virtual thing. <laughs> thank you for having me. It's a nice way to occupy my time, minus Netflix and work. So, <laughs> Have you done the Tiger King? I sort of refuse to do the Tiger King. Yeah. Good for you. <laughs> I've been doing a lot of bad Bollywood movies instead. So it's been. I actually yeah, started. Nice I like to kind of sometimes go astray. And I just discovered a crazy ex-girlfriend. Have you seen that? Oh, very good. I'm a, I'm a, yeah. I'm, I was a big Fountains of Wayne fan. And when Adam Schlesinger passed away from COVID-19, one of the terrible losses that we've had. In reading up all about just the the plethora of things he did, he was one of the people who wrote the songs for that show, and I was just like, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta get into this show I didn't even know existed, and it's fantastic. It's really funny, very sharp. Also, did you know that West Covina is a yes? Place in I had to Google that. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, that blows my mind, and now the song is always like stuck in my head whenever I hear that. Phrase. Yeah, such yeah. a talented songwriter, and just a really, really great show. Uh, if you're looking for something to watch that is uplifting and fun and goofy and creative and not, we all need a good distraction right now. Um, but I did want to have you on because you are very good at hot takes, and in particular, you had one recently that we're going to get to a little later, a piece you wrote for Food & Wine <laughs> about deleting your delivery app. We're also going to talk about the role of a restaurant editor when you can't eat at a restaurant. But first, we have a current event, if you will, that has taken some different turns in the span of less than a week that I really want to get into with you. And that is Shake Shack accepting and then a few days later giving back a $10 million Paycheck Protection Program Loan, or PPP as the kids are calling it. From the federal government. And before we get to our takes on this, for those who have not been following this closely, what are the basic, just the facts of what happened here? So uh, the PPP is, uh, you know, I forget how many billions of dollars were kind of uh, made available. 350 for billion. Yeah. Yeah. And they ran out of money very quickly. Um, there's a lot of small businesses that put in their applications, but the fund, you know, shut down uh, before they could get any money. Also, the terms of the money is actually very tough for restaurants. I mean, that's maybe a whole other conversation, um, but this is available for all small businesses. And yet most of the money or large chunks of the money in the, you know, up to $10 million, $20 million um, have been awarded to a lot of chain restaurants. 
um, which were able to apply because of a loophole that said, if I remember correctly, that it's 500 or less employees per location. Right. Those are the, the, those are the air quotes, <laughs> small businesses. Right. And so, you know, obviously Shake Shack at this point is no longer a small business. Neither is Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. I still hate the name uh, with a fiery passion. <laughs> hated the name before. Hated even more now. Um, you know, Pop Belly, as much as I love a good Midwestern sandwich chain, um, as someone who is currently in Michigan, uh, they also got money. You know, these are just places that often have you know publicly they're publicly traded companies they have other investors um they have other means of getting money besides you know a bank loan um and they're not struggling as hard as you know these other small restaurants and um instead they're the people getting a chunk of the pie so so yeah that's that pretty much sums it up and you know here on hot takes on a plate for those who maybe this is your first time listening i'll throw a hot take out there and then my guest being you will tell me why I'm right or tell me why I'm wrong. As it pertains to Shake Shack, I feel like we as a society need good guys and bad guys. And this is a story that actually has, in my opinion, a lot of shades of gray that Danny Meyer did a pretty good job of explaining in his note on Monday uh, to, to sort of sum it up and paraphrase. Um Basically, in his note, he put a note. I think it went out on LinkedIn Sunday night, and he was bait. What a I know, choice. right? <laughs> he talked to all those business people, but it, it it got around and pretty quickly. Um, basically talking about how you know, look, Shake Shack, like a lot of businesses, even though it is a big one, is struggling right now. They are losing money. Um, they were applying for something that they were legally allowed to. In his words, they didn't know it was going to run out of money. They didn't know that they were going to get ahead of everybody else. And so he, in his words, basically, he, to paraphrase, he was giving, decided after hearing what everyone had to say and the the reaction and, and knowing what he knows now to give it back. So there's a lot of gray there, but we don't like gray. We like Black and white, cut and dry, winners and losers, heroes and villains. And yes, Shake Shack should not be first in line for that money. Yes, it should mm -hmm. be going to his, to small businesses as the loans were supposed to. But I think more of the anger should be directed at the federal government here for writing it up that way, for botching the rollout, for creating a system that rewarded Shake Shack and Ruth's Chris and Potbelly and such. The reason it isn't is because that is exactly what we expect from the federal government. It's exactly what we expect from this administration. We expect big business to get bailed out. What made everyone so outraged at Shake Shack was that we didn't expect that from them. We didn't expect that from Danny Meyer. They're a chain that's never been treated like a chain by the food media or the general public. Mm -hmm. You know, Danny's an industry leader who's been lauded for his approach to hospitality and how he treats his employees. So this this felt like a betrayal, I think, to a lot of people. So then the question becomes, do we cut him some slack? Has he earned, has Shake Shack earned enough goodwill over the years to say, OK, you know what, Mia culpa, he's giving it back. Let's let it go. Or are we just eating all the rich right now, so to speak? Is it just is it just all that rage right now? I, I think it's complicated and nuanced and not a slam dunk either way. Tell me I'm right. Tell me I'm wrong. I mean, I think definitely a lot of the rage should be aimed at the federal government. 
uh, especially if you're someone who cares about restaurants, the fact that, you know, they're bailing out all these other industries, the airlines, et cetera, but are not creating a restaurant specific fund, um, a restaurant stability, like stabilization type, you know, situation in any sort of way when it also, you know, employees like just millions of people and is a industry that generates billions of dollars um, is crazy. You know, that is something that everyone should be angry towards. Uh, I am a big Danny Meyer fan. I respect a lot of what he does, but you know, I think in this case, he's, you know, it's less gray and actually more, more black and white in that he really is in the wrong, you know, yes, the language is confusing, but it was always for small businesses. Shake Shack is not a small business. Like they shouldn't have even applied in the first place. You can't exactly give back a loan either. It's just, he's paying back his lenders immediately. It's not like that money is necessarily getting redistributed to other mm. restaurants. And like, here's the fact of the matter too. There's a survey that went out, um, by the Independent Restaurant Coalition and the James Beard Foundation, I believe is the cross up, the matchup for that. And they surveyed a bunch of chefs and they asked most chefs like, you know, what, how much money do you really need, you know, to be able to stay open and to be able to just kind of ride this out until you can be back in business again. Most of them were looking for like 50K or less, you know? So if you take the $10 million that Shake Shack you know, received or the $20 million Ruth Chris Steakhouse received and divide that up. It's like, you know, you could save 200, 400, you know, restaurants, uh, small independent restaurants instead. And it's really disappointing that those are the restaurants that weren't able to get their money. I, I really do think what it comes down to the rage at Shake Shack has to do with the fact that people feel betrayed because they, they mm -hmm. it's, it's Danny Meyer. And they don't expect that from Danny better. Meyer. If they expect that, right? And it Danny feels like like run small restaurants. You know, yeah, exactly. Danny understands what it's like to be in these restaurateurs' shoes. He wore he was. It wasn't so long ago that he was one of these restaurant owners. Um, you know, owning a small a small business, and I don't know. You know, he he is getting flack too for having laid off so many people at Union Square Hospitality Group when perhaps he has enough money to float for health insurance and for other things that maybe other small businesses don't. So I'm not sure, you know, Danny Meyer has handled this um, the best way possible. I think there's a lot more that he could do. I mean, I and also giving back $10 million and then making this whole kind of show of it, you know, this whole statement, it's like he gives back $10 million, but he gave back that $10 million when they found $150 million in investments from other people. So it's like they already had this other source of money to keep them afloat, $150 million. They're probably have better terms than a bank. And, you know, that's when they're deciding to give the money back. And on top of it, it's like it's $10 million that they're giving back, but it's pretty much bought them probably like $20 million worth of free press at this point, making them look good. Well, you know? I will so say this about that. Danny is somebody who understands the importance of brand. And I think in some ways he understands on a macro level that brand can be more important to the bottom line than $10 million quickly. And I think that obviously that played a lot into this decision, but it also makes you wonder, like, how did he get himself in this position in the first place? Because, yes, maybe he's gotten free publicity out of it, but was it good publicity? It seems like the reaction to the giving the money back is pretty 50-50 from what I've seen. It's not like everybody's like, all right, cool. Thanks. I've seen a lot of people say, right. I'm done with Shake Shack. Right. Yeah. I mean, I love a Schroomberger as much as the next person, but, you know, is that the thing that 
when restaurants kind of reopen the thing I'll be going for first, definitely not. Um, or where I'll be spending my money, like probably not. Yeah, I, I think it's a mixed bag compared to what he was expecting. I think there is a lot of people though that are like hailing him as like a hero and as a leader of the food world, especially people outside of food media seem to be more enamored, you know, by this move than people that are in food media. I've been seeing more criticism, I feel like, within the food media space than outside. And I think that's really interesting because that brings up another point, which is that I think part of what makes all of this so complicated is that we as food media have probably been a little too cozy with our subjects over the years. I think food media is is almost like a neophyte when you're talking about different types of media compared to, say, a political media or even a sports media. Mm -hmm. And we've seen those types of media evolve over decades where, you know, there was a time if you were covering politics or sports, for instance, where you didn't make certain things public. You know, if a, if an, if a politician or an athlete, let's say, was having an affair, right? That was not something that got reported on. Like the press might know about it, but they were very cozy with their subjects. And then it wasn't until decades later that now we break stories in those realms. And I think food media has been drifting away from that cozy relationship in recent years. You're seeing it become a little, I don't want to use the word combative, but a little bit more aggressive. But I mean, I just think back to a few weeks ago, there was that that story with Jean George at the Philly Chefs Conference where, you know, he's talking about not regretting to our friend Jeff Gordonier, not regretting um, punching um, a former staffer decades ago in the face. Mm -hmm. And it took days for that story to come out. Days. Mm -hmm. And it was a local publication in Philadelphia that put the story out there and almost not almost like buried it, but because they, they did put it out there. But it's like, I feel like if that was any other form of media, that would have, and there were journalists and all sorts of people at that thing. It's like, mm -hmm. I do think there's a little bit of a, a cozy relationship sometimes with our subjects in food media that makes it sometimes hard to really do the hardest hitting reporting. And I think this pandemic is changing that fast, quite frankly. I think that, I think the Me Too movement was like a, or is like a huge yes. part of that shift yes. too. I think- the thing that we get into, you know, with food media, I, I understand what you're saying, and it's easy to see why that might be the case. I mean, it's all about hospitality, right? So, like, everyone has like such warm relationships with these. I'm guilty as charged. I'm not pretending I'm above it. it. I'm not. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so it's it's a it's an automatically a warmer relationship than maybe you know a political reporter has with their you know, the people that they tend to cover because, you know, hospitality is all about, you know, warmth and like bringing people in and, and all of that. So, um, and for a while there, I think people didn't really want to see past kind of the shiny veneer of, you know, what these chefs were presenting, these chefs with like really great fierce PR teams that, you know, really marketed and protected these chefs like incredibly well. Um, but I think as, and, you know, to be honest, I think a lot of it is also for a long time, um, a lot of food media, you know, was a white man that was best friends with another white male chef. And it was a lot of like, not taking down someone who kind of just like, not wanting to admit that like someone, you know, who they're cozy with and who they're friends with could be a, actually a terrible human. Because um, it, you know, in a way, it's hard to see someone who looks like you, you know, be sort of a, you know, a terrible reflection of, of of yourself in a way and so i think as the faces of food media you know is are changing we're going to start to see that relationship 
shift. Well, I think it's also, for instance, I think some of it, like with sports, for instance, the wealthier and more powerful athlete to become, you can't be a reporter and be that close. You know what I mean? Like if you're somebody who makes $20 Mm -hmm. million a year, you're probably not hanging out with that local reporter. Whereas a lot of chefs are hanging out with the food media because there isn't that great sort of divide, if you will, you know, that socioeconomic divide. Yeah, that's also true. And also like, you know, with athletes to get access to them is so much harder versus a chef. It's like, you just walk into the restaurant for the most part. And it's like, you know, if they're a chef worth, worth anything, they're usually probably in their restaurant somewhere. You know, Absolutely. Well, speaking of being in restaurants, that's a part of your job that has changed tremendously right now. I mean, how has your job changed now that you aren't traveling and visiting restaurants in person? It's crazy. Um, so at Food and Wine, we do this big temple every year called Best New Chefs. You know, it's been going on since it's like 32nd year, I believe, at this point. Um, and it's a real core thing to the brand. And um, I was very lucky that I actually completed all my travel for this in February. You know, I went to 25 cities, um, hundreds of restaurants to find our Best New Chefs and our Best New Restaurants for the year, but you know, who knows what next year's is going to look like, or, you know, technically I'm supposed to start traveling again in the fall. We'll see if that is like the timeline that it happens at. Um, So I'm able to still report this year's uh, version, but you know, it's comes out in our July issue, which is our restaurant issue. We had to sit down, you know, as soon as all of this started happening and really we work so far ahead in magazines and we had to completely revamp our entire July issue, you know, it, it's going to look very different than any July issue in years past. We're still honoring our best new chefs, but it's still, it's just a different format, you know, and with best new chefs, there's supposed to be like a big best new chefs party. We do like this big festival in Aspen every summer, you know, so like all of these things that like all the fun stuff that was supposed to go with this, like is kind of, well, that's just it. It's a, it's a fun job. And now it's become a much more serious job. I mean, I think it's showing that, you know, to do this, you you have to be a reporter because you're, you're having to be more, not that yeah. you or anyone else who has a job like yours wasn't a journalist before, but you understand what I'm saying. It's so much more about the journalism now and less about maybe even like the food knowledge and all of that. It, it's, it, it's, it's hardcore reporting right now. I basically have to go back and re-report pretty much all the best new chefs and best new restaurant coverage, plus additional stuff, you know, that we're doing and all of it. Now you have to do on your phone. You know, I'm basically on the phone all day long, you know, to re-report both of those things is 20 phone calls at minimum, you know, to like make that happen. Um, So it's been interesting. It's, I've always been really cognizant of the fact, you know, that I am very lucky to have, Uh, you know, a steady job, a steady paycheck, health insurance, and I report on an industry where most people don't have either of those things um, or any of those things, you know, they really lack instability, but it's just been, you know, just been extra, it's just been like thrown in my face, like every single phone call now, you know, is just like a deep reminder. Is there um, any survivor's guilt, so to speak? Sort of, yeah. I don't know, you do, well, it's just, it's helped me sit in gratitude a lot. You know, I find myself just extremely grateful for every single thing I have in life at the minute. Um, But it just, 
it makes me, I, you know, it makes me mad that I'm not a billionaire that can like personally save just like all these restaurants and chefs that I love and, and their staffs and everyone that's just like hurting so deeply from this. And, you know, I, instead I make a journalist salary and we recently had pay cuts. So I make even less of a journalist salary right now. Um, and I, you know, all I can do is, is report on their stories and report on their frustrations. Um, you know, that's where the dis delivery app story came from. I can buy merch. I can try and support in any way that I possibly can. But, you know, unfortunately, I can't, you know, solo save them all as much as I wish I and, could. And, you know, I've always thought that the job, your job, of a, of a restaurant editor at a national magazine, it was impossible to begin with. I mean, how on earth does one person report on restaurants in a nation as large as ours accurately without being sucked into an echo chamber and visiting only larger cities because more bang for your travel buck, so to speak. And now coming out of this, there may be travel restrictions. There may be travel fears. I mean, how do you do this job on the other side? I, uh, you know, that's the thing I've been thinking about a lot the last couple of weeks, especially, um, you know, I would spend a ton of time on planes uh, and maybe I don't get on planes again. Maybe it is a thing where I end up road tripping around the entire country. You know, I just spend a ton of time in my car. Could there be a benefit um, to that in the sense like what was the smallest city you went to when you were compiling your best chefs list? Los Alamos. California. OK, you got tiny. I guess that's how, yeah. how big it population. 2000? Wow. OK. OK. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, you know where I'm going with this. It's like, obviously, you get on a plane, you're going somewhere. It Of course, it makes sense to go to a decent sized city where you can visit six, right. seven, 12, however many restaurants versus one restaurant in a tiny city in the middle of nowhere. And that's all you're going to experience. But I guess maybe a road trip could be a beneficial thing because you could hit things on the way. I don't know. 100%. And I mean, I did road trip from LA, you know, I flew into LAX and then I drove up. So um, I think it could actually allow me to get to places that maybe, you know, we never really had time for before. It just couldn't structure the travel around before. Also, I think takeout is going to remain, you know, until we get like a vaccine or like really incredible treatment options or something, you know, I think takeout is going to remain like a huge part of most restaurants models at this point. I think we're gonna have to judge hospitality in a completely different light. Um, and even just like the style of food that they're able to create, right? If takeout is like how they have to be able to present it, the menus are gonna look completely different um, for a while. And so it's gonna be figuring out like a new set of parameters for like what makes a restaurant good, what makes a chef good. Um, you know, a big thing for us at Food and Wine too is making sure that all of our best new chefs are not just great chefs, but also great leaders and great humans. You know, we do background checks. There shouldn't be a history of, you know, any sort of abuse, anything like that. Um, but what, I don't know, what, how do you figure out that kind of stuff too, when maybe they no longer have staffs and it's just them, Yeah. you know, cooking space, everything is just, yeah, it's completely shifted in a way that was... I never could have predicted even like two months ago. I mean, I, I think about, you know, we were talking about what this is going to look like on the other side. I worry about restaurants that have very communal dining experiences. Like think about, mm -hmm. well, think, you think, yeah, yeah. or think about like an Indian restaurant, like Indian culture, you share food. You don't eat your plate, you share it. Or you think about tapas or you think about 
crawfish boils or you think about barbecue or dim sum or Italian-American family style. Like, are people going to want to pass around plates and do that sort of thing? And if they are not wanting to do that, what does dining out become? Is it we're, we're all so far apart from each other and it's militaristic and here's your plate and you stick to your plate and I'm going to stick to mine and... You know, I was talking with a with a president of a large restaurant group last night for another project I'm working on, and he was talking about some of the ideas they're floating about taking guests' temperature at the door and things mm-hmm. that were hearkening to an image of like you know when you think about pre and post nine eleven with airlines, right? Like it used to just be like you could right. walk up to a gate and wait for a friend to get off a plane and greet them right away, and and right. now we 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 don't think anything about taking off our shoes and our belts and our this and our that. Right. But it's like th- that's different in a way because yeah, it's annoying, but it's just travel. We're talking about taking the fun right. out of a fun very, experience. What does that perfect. What does that leave you? Right. With? Yeah, dining out as a form of entertainment is, I don't know, maybe we shift from that, you know, it's, or like who you share stuff with is like the small tribe that you feel safe with. So like your immediate family, or maybe, you know, a couple of friends that you guys are just kind of in this small circle. But yeah, I don't know. I miss the energy of dining rooms a lot right now. Um, I miss restaurants a lot, (laughs) but I wonder, you know, at the same time, you know, I hope that we can eventually return to restaurants, you know, functioning in full, full scale. I also just don't know how restaurants can survive right now at like 50% capacity or whatever they're talking about. Like in California, you know, they propose like having people, you know, dining rooms at 50% capacity, like their operating costs might not just be worth it at the end of the day, if that's like still what they have to do and like how do you do service safely and like you can't really dine in a restaurant with a mask on your no. face the whole time and you know, you know to so your point just, about that so that. let's just assume yeah. you know which is a big assumption but let's assume that a lot of these restaurants can see the other side of this and exist on the other side of this mm-hmm. uh, a hot take of mine is i wonder who's going to be running restaurants down the road. And I know there's a lot of talk about the chains can survive this and the mom and pop camp, but let's put that aside just for a second. Let's say you're somebody who's thinking about opening a restaurant. You're just Joe Schmo. It used to be the average person who thought about running a restaurant was a creative type who understood the quote unquote razor thin margins and, you know, was was somebody who said, okay, yes, it's going to be a lot of work and I'm not going to make a lot of money, but I'm a creative person and I have to express myself through my food and I'm going to put this out there Mm -hmm. and I'm going to put it out there because I want to see people come in my dining room and I want to see their faces light up and I want to create that party and that atmosphere. And if you're taking away that party and that atmosphere, like who are we talking about getting into this business with all those barriers I talked about in the beginning? It's like... is to me, it's going to be the wrong kind of people. It's going to be people that are just looking at this as just making a buck. And that is not the right. kind of restaurants that you or I probably want to go to. I mean, is that what we're going to be left with? I'm afraid it, it it might be. I mean, tell me I'm right. Tell me I'm wrong. I mean, I certainly hope that isn't <laughs> the case. Yeah, it's, I don't know, or maybe we'll find new joys in new formats. Um, You know, I talked to a restaurateur or a chef restaurateur in um, Portland recently, and he's been using the time. He kind of is a hit first restaurant right now, and he's kind of reformatted uh, during this to 
kind of do a pop-up within his restaurant. So it's a whole different menu, but it's like, he's using the time to kind of test this other concept. Um, and he's saying, he's kind of having a lot of fun doing it because in a way there's no limitations of a dining room and what diners expect and like how to feed and, you know, a 80 person dining room. It's instead, he's just kind of cooking whatever the hell he wants to cook this week. And then whatever the hell he wants to cook next week. And it's actually been selling out for him. So, he, I mean, he told me at the moment he's making 20% of what they were making, you know, on a good day when they were kind of up and running fully. But maybe, you know, we'll, we'll find stuff that's more like that. You know, food will start to get way more casual, way more just takeout friendly. But there's still a lot of joy and passion and like stuff put into that you know they're getting really creative with burgers they're getting really creative maybe, with like uh, sandwiches. maybe desperation you know? creates innovation yeah i think so and i think you know the restaurant industry is one of the, the things that i've taken away the most from all my reporting um and just being non-stop on the phone with a lot of chefs and a lot of cooks and a lot of people involved in the industry it's one of the most resilient industries around absolutely you know they are able to do so much um, in the face of so much adversity and um, in the face of just thin margins and in the face of, you know, I mean, I just look at this, like, even though restaurants are the bit, one of the industries hurting the most, they're also one of the industries that's first to be feeding the communities, feeding oh, the mine workers, you know, taking care of everyone else, even though that their bank accounts are basically being drained in the process and many times, you know, um, they're still the first to step up to like feed the community. So, I think they'll find it'll I think things will evolve. You know, I think for a while we just really might be in this like takeout land, you know, where it's everyone is finding really creative, you know, pickup and takeout menus to be doing and to be doing safely. Um, but it's it'll sort of it'll be dining without any sort of theatrics, you know. And that kind of segues perfectly to what I alluded to at the beginning of this, which is the piece you wrote entitled it's time to delete your delivery apps uh in food and wine uh was came out i think april 10th um on the web and it was one of those pieces that i think a lot of people at least who follow the industry it's like something we've all been kind of thinking in terms of mm -hmm. like what's going on with these delivery apps uh the predatory practices that they have but you worded it in such a perfect way you just sort of you, you hammered it home in a way that was like, yes, that's what I meant to say. Like, it was just like that perfect sort of summing up the issue with these delivery apps. And so I'm going to hand the floor over to you for a second and just kind of explain to people who maybe missed it. What is wrong with these delivery apps exactly right now? Because we were talking about Shades of Grey before, but this is one that I really can't see it. As somebody who likes to see Shades of Grey, I don't really see a shade of gray here. It's pretty black and white to me that the Grub Hubs and the Seamlesses and the DoorDashes and all of them are doing some pretty nasty stuff right now. Yeah, Grubhub actually seems to be the worst offender of them all, which is kind of wild. Um, so basically these delivery apps, you know, kind of, they, for people that don't know, they take massive commissions from restaurants on each order, upwards of 30% is sort of the standard. Um, some restaurants have been able to negotiate lower contracts, Caviar of all caviar, which is owned by DoorDash, um, seems to be the kindest of all of them as far as like 
especially if you're a trendy restaurant. I've heard of some restaurants getting as low as a 4% commission, which is incredibly low. Um, and so some of those restaurants, you know, will actually request that you go through caviar to order them, but they're the one exception, you know, to the rule. Otherwise, most restaurants actually hate these delivery services. In fact, they only work with them because it keeps them competitive. You know, it's because everyone's sort of- It's exposure. It's, you know, it's exposure. It's- you know, a way to generate new business. So a lot of them hope that basically people will like their food and then go through, you know, the restaurant themselves to get or some place. Some restaurants don't um, have delivery people. Yeah. Also that, but you know, so they charge these restaurants giant commissions on top of that, they charge them kind of crazy marketing fees. So they might, um, you know, give diners a promotion where it's like, okay, you get $10 off you know, a $30 order, which is something that Grubhub was recently doing, but they charge that $10 commission to the restaurants itself, the $10 discount to the restaurant. So the restaurants are actually stomaching that discount. Um, and on top of that, Grubhub charges their commission based on the original total amount, not the discounted total amount too. So they're just taking money at every, you know, point. And when restaurants don't have their dining you know, their dining room to balance out delivery. Most restaurants were already kind of losing money on delivery, but it was something that they were just offering. Um, when they don't have the dining room to offset that money, um, you know, they're and in a time where they're just solely dependent upon delivery to survive, to just pay their lease, to pay the insane property taxes and stuff that they have to do, um, insane payroll taxes that they have to pay. Um, you know, these companies continue to just take money from their pockets. You know, it's a time where 15, 20, $30 makes like a big difference. Um, and instead these companies refuse to cut them a break on commissions. Um, and, and they're yeah, not paying their delivery people either. That's, I think that's, that might even be the bigger one because they're the ones, the delivery people who are out there on the front lines doing this work and they're not being, they're not, a lot of them are not being, as you pointed out in the piece, they're not being provided even basic things like hand sanitizer or gloves, or sometimes in the case, they're not being provided health care. They're not being provided a, a, a livable wage. And they're the ones who are doing the, the so-called dirty work. Yeah. I've had a couple drivers tweet at me that I was messing with their income, which I understand um, could be a frustration on their end, especially when, you know, this is when all other restaurant work is basically shut down. It's right complicated. Now, is like it's all complicated few. to an yeah. extent. It's one of the few industries that is hiring, but at the same time, these companies should be treating these delivery drivers who are literally risking their lives mm -hmm. at this point, um, you know, much better. DoorDash and Caviar do provide provide the option for the delivery drivers to order gloves and hand sanitizer like through them, you know, for free um, or for the cost of shipping. I think it is like $5. So it's like something reasonable, but none of these other companies have even offered, you know, that like that basic protection at, at bare minimum, you know, like that to me just seems like the minimum at this point, providing gloves and masks and a hand sanitizer, they should be increasing, you know, the percentage cut that they make. Um, they should be providing like, just, yeah, healthcare benefits, things like that. Some of them will provide pay, like if they do get sick with COVID, but it's like to prove that you even have COVID and to get the it's test pretty is hard. already like such a, yeah, crazy Well, situation. and some of the PR so, stunts that you, you know. pointed out that they're doing are pretty wild. You know, making it seem like they're helping the restaurants when 
you know, they're deferring payments, which means that the restaurants will have a balloon payment to give these services down the road. And if you're struggling with money, that's almost worse than paying as you go along. 100%, especially when your restaurant is probably not going to be able to open at full capacity in the next eight weeks when Grubhub wants to come collect, you know, this deferred payment. And they're, yeah, they're basically positioning themselves as friends of restaurants as like people who are really championing the restaurant industry when in fact they're kind of leaching money from and, the but what if they leach too much they're not going to have like 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 i don't understand no. it's it's in the delivery apps best interest to help restaurants because they don't exist without restaurants so to pillage them right now when they're weak what is that going to leave them with like it doesn't make sense to me i feel like they almost don't care you know a lot of these companies like uber Uber Eats PR reached out to me, which by the way, Uber Eats is still charging companies to join their platform. So even though delivery is like the only option right now, they'll still charge you $350 to join their platform, which is crazy to me. Um, $350 is a huge chunk of change for restaurants right now. It's like all that they're making in, you know, many days, like an entire day's work, they can make $350 and then to offset all their costs. Uber Eats like PR reached out to me being like, you do know, like we don't make money on like Uber Eats, like blah, 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 blah. It's just because all of these companies are just funded with so much venture capital money that like they're operating with losses, but they're still like, they still have millions of dollars. They're flush with like some of them, Caviar slash DoorDash, I think is worth a billion dollars at this point. So they're doing okay. So yeah, I don't understand why for a couple of months they can't just kind of cut this industry that they survive on, you know, they're the literal middlemen in this situation. Um, why they can't cut them. Well, and rate, they're spending you know, money for- clearly on PR and advertising. I saw in my Instagram feed, you know, when you look through your stories, um, you know, they'll, yeah. they'll throw some ads your way. There was an ad for, I think it was seamless. It was one of the apps and they had, I kid you not, they had Ann Burrell promoting them. And it made me so mad. Cause I'm like, you're a chef. And you've owned right. restaurants. You like know, this, <laughs> th- it felt treasonous to me. Yeah. Like, oh. I think it was like, maybe, was it Postmates? Well, I forget which one of the apps. They also had this campaign where they teamed up with these celebrities to give out like a couple, like two or three delivery meals as if like there were being these like very generous, I don't know, generous, generous companies. Yeah, it's really terrible no it's it's it is and there's a lot of terrible things going on right now um it's hard sometimes to predict when we when we can laugh when we can have fun when we should be enraged but i think it's probably probably a balance of all of those things that we need to keep in mind we need to know when to laugh and have a good time and when to be enraged and fight for things we believe in uh kushbu thank you so much it's kush and oj on instagram and twitter correct (laughs) Correct. <laughs> and I'm Rob Patron TV on all things social media. Kush Bouchard, Food & Wine Magazine, thank you so much for coming on Hot Takes on a Plate. And if this is your first time tuning in, make sure to subscribe or follow us on your podcast listening app of choice. And if you like what you heard, please rate us. Five stars, of course. You can leave your comment, too. Hot Takes on a Plate is part of the Believe Podcast Network. That's B-L-E-A-V. You can find them at B-L-E-A-V.com. I'm Rob Patron. Till next time, ciao. Thank you
thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.